0: The Global North's insatiable appetite for the latest fashion, coupled with gargantuan marketing budgets to continue to promote that kind of consumption, has contributed to massive amounts of clothing waste and pollution. The ripple effect has greatly impacted countries in the Global South. I'm Rebecca Burgess, the founder of a California-based nonprofit called Fibershed. Learn more on the Weaving Voices podcast, a Whetstone Radio collective podcast. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Hello, fellow sapiens. I'm Chip Galwell. I'm Esteban Gomez. I'm Jen Shannon. I'm Aura. And I'm Yuli. And we are a new generation of anthropologists and archaeologists who love to investigate what makes us human. Over the years, we've gone to space to find out whether it's a human place.
0: Three, two, one. And
1: And we've wondered why some people eat bugs. It's
0: the black ants that when they die, they actually release citric acid.
1: And others don't. (laughs) (laughs) And we've learned how reconnecting with ancestors from uncovering sunken slave ships to identifying hidden burial grounds are human acts of reclamation.
0: That was according to the wishes of the descendant community.
1: We are Sapiens, a podcast
0: for everything human.
1: And we can't wait to answer your questions about the human experience. Please subscribe now, wherever you're listening to this show, and check us out at sapiens.org. Hey everyone, I'm Jesse Sparks, host of the new podcast, The One Recipe, from the team behind the Splendid Table. This pod is all about that one recipe that you lean on. The one you share with friends, the one you make when you need a little love, and the one you know will work every single time. Every week, I talk with chefs and gifted cooks from all over the world about their one and the story behind it. We're here to help you build your kitchen library one dish at a time. Follow the one recipe wherever you get your podcasts.
0: My name is Shiloh Maples. I'm Turtle Clan. I'm Anishinaabe. I'm a citizen of the Little River Band of Ottawa. I also belong to the Ojibwe people of Swan Creek and Black River. I'm speaking to you from my homelands here in the Great Lakes. Welcome to Spirit Plate. In this space, we will talk about Indigenous foodways as means of resistance, resilience, and revitalization. Within this growing Indigenous food movement, there is an incredible story of reclamation and intertribal solidarity. Powerful yet untold examples of Native people resisting and thriving. The stories of our foodways are one of the greatest testaments of Indigenous brilliance and our beauty of spirit. But before we can talk about Indigenous people's food traditions and contemporary efforts to revitalize their food systems, we have to understand the history of disruption that makes this work necessary. Today, I've invited Shelly Buffalo, Meskwaki seed keeper to talk about her experiences with seed rematriation. That is, reuniting with her heritage seeds and the power of reconnecting with ancestral foods. As communities work towards tribal food sovereignty, they often find themselves looking to reconnect with culturally significant seeds. In the early 1900s, some anthropologists and ethnobotanists feared a loss of biodiversity. So they traveled across Turtle Island collecting these seeds from indigenous communities to hold in their museum and university collections. Unfortunately, some of these varieties no longer exist in their communities of origin. The process of seed rematriation reunites tribal communities with these seeds that have been held within institutions, seed banks, universities, and museums. So before we start the interview, could you please introduce yourself any way that you would like? My name is Shelley Buffalo,
1: and I am from the Meskwaki tribe. Our settlement is in central Iowa, close to a small town named Tama. We've always referred to ourselves as Meskwaki. Meskwaki means people of the red earth. So in our very name indicates where we came from and how we were created.
0: Thank you. You started sharing a little bit about this already, that Meskwaki is a settlement, which is different from a reservation community. Could you provide a little history or background for us about this term settlement? You know, just a little bit more info about the Meskwaki Nation. Sure. So through a series
1: of treaties, we lost all of our treaty land. Well, let's put it this way, you know, like a, a large percentage of Iowa was Meskwaki treaty land, more specifically Sac and Fox, because the U.S. government grouped us into with the Saugee and called us the Fox, because that's what the French called us, the Renards. After forced removal west of the Mississippi, then, like I said, you know, before Iowa was a state, uh, much of what we now call Iowa was um, Sac and Fox treaty lands. But of course, none of those treaties were honored and we were removed to a reservation in Kansas. And then not long after removal to Kansas, then we were told that we would be further removed to a reservation in Oklahoma. During all of this removal period to reservations, many Meskwaki remained in Iowa in small groups and kind of staying under the radar, right? And many of the Meskwakis that cooperated with removal went to Kansas and then came back. In fact, we kept coming back. There's an old trail called the Dragoon Trail here in Iowa. And that was specifically, if I'm correct about my history, the Dragoon Trail was used to send troops out to basically kind of herd us back west, right to the reservation. Well, you know, Kansas and Oklahoma, that's prairie. And we are forest dwellers. We're of the Eastern Algonquian cultures, which includes many tribes in our language group. And we are forest dwellers, right? So we're not prairie Indians. We would make trips to hunt on the prairie, but we're not prairie Indians. We're woodland people. And I got to get away from saying Indians because like amongst Indians, we say Indians, right? But for everybody else, it's natives or indigenous. Anyway. So our settlement came to be our resistance basically, not in a huge band and not as a war party, but in little groups kept coming back to what was more familiar with us as far as the, the ecology of the land. In eighteen fifty-seven, a group of Meskwaki leaders were able to come up with the plan and to raise the money to buy the first eighty acres in uh, Tama County, Iowa. Those first acres were primarily along the Iowa River floodplain. Yeah, that established the Meskwaki Settlement. So that's 1857. All the details of being recognized you know, federally and you know, all the stuff that happened between then and now, that's pretty extensive, but now our settlement has grown to over 8,000 acres. And our tribal membership, specifically the folks that live here on the Meskwaki Settlement, so, enrolled residents, it's about 1,450. Wow. So, that's enrolled only. So, that does not include all of the descendants, as well as all the folks that have intermarried. We are a relatively small tribe with a small land base, especially compared to some of the extensive reservation lands out west. At the same time, our establishment of settlement, as opposed to being on reservation lands, meant that we could maintain a certain level of autonomy and self-determination that the folks that uh, were on reservations weren't afforded. Because for many years, we kind of flew under the government's radar. Yeah, we were just too small. and, And I suppose, you know, because we purchased the land, Even though it had to be held in trust. Yeah, just the way we went about doing that kind of, like I said, kept us in this gray area as far as the federal government was concerned. And so it's definitely benefited this tribe tremendously.
0: Thank you for sharing that. What are some of your favorite ancestral foods? So I have to quote my
1: son Ryder here. Like when he says he wants Indian food, And that doesn't mean going to an Indian buffet, although we love doing that. He means, you know, Meskwaki food. And I know what he's asking for. He's asking for corn soup. So that's our Meskwaki corn. Common name is Tama Flint. The soup has, of course, has the corn. It also often includes our Meskwaki beans, which is a type of red runner bean. We call them red face climbers. And then some type of meat, like one of the most common meats is chicken. These days, especially starting in October, because Meskwaki has a herd of bison and has started their meat distribution program. Well, that means that I can put bison with our corn soup. And so as long as I have bison and occasionally deer, usually not those, usually like I'd have to say the bison in there is my favorite. And so that's Day which means, you know, indigenous people in general. So that's my favorite nano day food. And I'd say the same with my boys.
0: That's great. I I love some corn soup. I I make a very similar with our corn and beans. And I usually use smoked turkey, but the buffalo meat, that, that is a treat. Did you grow up eating your traditional foods? I did. Not that we ate them all the time, but my folks
1: took me to some of our ceremonies and of course, when I visited my grandmother in Meskwaki, our pet name for our grandmothers is Guku, but the proper term for grandmother is Nukumas. We go to Guku's house and more than, often than not, we would have, once again, most commonly the corn soup. Another thing, though, that Guku was really skilled at, so many different foods, but she, she made squirrel and dumplings and a pretty amazing dish. <laughs> Because, you know, squirrels aren't very big. And so it's just amazing how much, I don't know, deliciousness and and taste of family and home and everything that you can get out of that. But you sure can. And of course, my gugu was a master fry bread maker, the best fry bread ever. And I have not honored that. I am not a fry bread maker and I don't plan to be.
0: <laughs> so we originally met through mutual involvement in the Indigenous Seed Keepers Network I was wondering if you could share how you came to seed keeping.
1: In a strange roundabout way. As the seeds usually take us, right? <laughs> yeah. After having my first son, this was like the early 2000s. I really, I really wanted to start traditional garden. And I started with just the corn. And this was maybe, I think this was maybe around 2005, I think. First off, it was a challenge for me to obtain seeds because it just... My immediate family, like my folks, they were getting further up in years. And so they weren't keeping a garden every year. And besides, like our place is way back in the woods out here. With corn, you need open land. You need plenty of light. So you need a good size clearing. You you can still grow in the woods, but you need a good size clearing because they really need that full day of sun. Up here, we just don't really have that. The corn will grow, but it's definitely a shorter version than the ones that get the full day of sun. That was like one of the first things is like the seed. And then ancestral gardening, I'd never done it on my own. So like that first time it was successful, but that success was completely because of Just the strength and resilience of our Tama Flint corn, not really from my bumbling efforts. But it was such a challenge because there's certain protocols. It's like every step of the way, you feel like you're making a mistake. And at that time, there wasn't a food sovereignty program and there wasn't seed rematriation and there wasn't a language program. You know, there was at the settlement school, but not for the community members. There was like so much that wasn't in place to, to help us, to support us. So that was like, I'd say my starting point. And, you know, over the years, off and on, I kept trying to, even when I lived in town, have a little garden. And one year, the corn grew really well. But then the raccoons, as soon as it was ready, they marauded my little garden and stole all my corn. So I didn't have any seed to save from that. But then in 2017, I'd been living and working in the Iowa City area, which is a college town over on the eastern side of Iowa. I was really hurting for my community, right? I was getting exhausted of not being around there much and of quite honestly, living in the colonizers world with it's just constant onslaught of microaggressions, whether it's the kids at school or whether it's the neighbors, you know, you name it, as well as like all the other well people who wanna know more about my culture, my background, but it's just like having to educate people constantly. It's exhausting. And so I really wanted to go home. I uh, I started asking around for jobs and it just so happened that there was an opening at Red Earth Gardens, which is Meskwaki's tribally run organic vegetable farm. So this isn't traditional foods, but it's organic vegetables. So it's in an effort to rebuild that local food space and to get healthy local foods available for the community. And so I started there. And then a year later, I found myself in the Food Sovereignty Program as coordinator. And I have to say like when I was at Red Earth Gardens, that was the year, that was 2017, 2018. And it was spring of 2018 when Meskwaki hosted the Great Lakes Intertribal Food Summit. So for one, there's so many people that I met and connected to at that food summit that I am still connected to, that I'm still have you know wonderful relationships with. But what's amazing to me is like so many of those people, that food summit, you know, that we hosted also was an amazing turning point for them too. So I was working this whole time during the Food Summit. Like I really didn't have a whole lot of time to stop and and join any of the sessions. But I was kind of like a fly on the wall (laughs) as I was supporting, making sure everything was pulled off and done well and needs provided for. And I happened to be in the room when Rowan was uh, doing her seed teachings. My ears are already kind of big, as you can see. And they just like, whoosh, they got really big. And my busy mind just went Meow. When I heard Rowan speak about seeds, you know, I'll never forget that moment. Because <laughs> I. that's just like, this is what I'm here for, man. This is like, sometimes in my own community, You know, getting these teachings is like pulling teeth. It's so hard. For so many complicated reasons, it's so hard. And so having Rowan come in and lay it all out like that, just bringing that gift, given freely without expectation, with no quid pro quo, so to speak, man, you know, it's life changing. It really is. That food summit, that was one of those moments of many moments where things really started to come together for me. And so when I was transferred into the food sovereignty program as coordinator, then I was like, not just on the periphery, but I was living and eating and sleeping and breathing it to the extent that I burned out. Because, you know, this is the stuff that I'd been asking for and waiting for and hoping for and afraid to ask for for so long. And so when it came to me, I kind of over-applied myself, so to speak. But I haven't stopped. I took a break. I regrouped. I just had a conversation about this. Once the path has been, you know, the path that you've been searching for, once you finally find it, it's like you never leave it. And every distraction and every kind of roadblock along the way just becomes less and less. as you're just like, nope, this is it. I'm never leaving this path. This is the one I've been looking for my whole life.
0: Yeah, I can relate to that. I'm actually getting a little teary listening to your story because it it reminds me a lot of my own journey, too. Um, I know that over the last several years, you've been involved with rematriation of some of your ancestral seeds, helping to bring them out of museums and other large institutions and returning them back to your community. What has that experience of rematriation been like for you? Shiloh, I share that when I'm talking about
1: this personal stuff and, and kind of like that long journey to it. Like, I just get so choked up. So rematriation. For the Meskwaki, our first contact with, well, let's just say, it, you know, the colonizers, right? Happened in the early 1600s. Now, we were affected by their new world, right, prior to that. But this is like the actual first contact. And so early 1600s. I figured that out to be, because it's about four generations every 100 years. So 16 generations deep since the first European contact. So 16 generations of colonization. Sounds like a lot. The common name for our Meskwaki corn is Tama Flint. And... Us Meskwaki have been growing out this seed and have kept it with us since it came to us over 3,000 years ago. So I said, well, let's just decide on 3,500 years, right? 3,500 years, that relationship, that is 140 generations. So rematriation is about decolonization. And it's about healing in every way and reconnecting with your ancestors Because like I found in one growing season that I could overcome the fact that, you know, I struggled to learn my language because of my dad being a boarding school survivor, right? Overcome the struggle to learn my own culture because of all the pressures of modernity, of genocide, right? And I could reconnect with 140 generations of my grandmothers in a single growing season in taking that seed into your hand. Planting it, taking care of it, harvesting it, processing it, and eating it. Yes. Once that connected, you know, up here and in here too, I just was like, I realized that that was my biggest hurdle. And every other challenge that I was going to face from that time on would be insignificant compared to this, that realization and that experience. So coming into this relationship and being able to re- rematriate with my ancestral foods. The best way to describe it is, you know, the ultimate healing journey. You know, we can go through the motions, like we can go through the ceremonies and we can learn the language. You know, we can talk, walk, dress, and we can express, you know, in all these ways that are reflect our our ancestors. But ultimately, unless you are doing the healing, it's so much going through the motions.
0: Extensive trade routes that connected all parts of the continent along with advanced knowledge in plant breeding resulted in hundreds of regionally adapted varieties of these foods. These heritage or heirloom varieties were developed over time as seed keepers select the best of each generation to become seed stock for future plantings. These prized harvests are selected because of their pest and disease resistance, flavor and appearance preferences, regional climate suitability and adaptability, and other preferable traits. As many varieties of these seeds exist, so do the variety of traditional stories and cultures surrounding them. As seeds change from hand to hand, these stories, histories, recipes, and agricultural knowledge often are shared as well. In that way, the practices of seed keepers also make them historians and cultural memory keepers, passing on the stories of how indigenous peoples and their plant can have evolved through millennia together on the shared landmass. These practices, along with many others, have sustained generations.
1: Many in our community are first-time gardeners. The great thing about the, the Food Sovereignty Program and seed rematriation is, you know, the challenges that I mentioned earlier when I was trying to do this on my own. You know, we're removing those barriers. You know, the seeds are there available to any of our community members for the asking. And the program, every spring, has a seed and transplant giveaway. And so it's, you know, this big effort to get people to grow their food. One of the things that when I was still with the program that I helped to get started was the Kinship Garden. And uh, the Kinship Garden's moved around a little bit, but now it has a long-term home, thankfully. And it provides garden space for people who don't like us, who were tucked away in the woods and we don't really want to clear the woods. So, you know, we have garden space now that's in a nice open area, you know, for everybody that needs it. So that access is a huge thing. That was also a challenge, just trying to find growing space. And then the other aspect of removing barriers is that support so getting that help with knowing what you're doing, having discussions about the different protocols. There's some basic protocols that everybody needs to know and to practice, but there's also family protocols, which has its like own little variations. Think of like your family recipe. My grandma's cake recipe isn't gonna be the same as, you know, so and so's or pie recipe or smoked turkey. <laughs> that sounded really good. I'm like, I want some smoked turkey now you know so what that's meant is that we have a lot of the younger generation people with young families that are new to gardening and so they're they're getting into it And then we have folks that used to have gardens that are coming back into it.
0: That's wonderful. You know, as a seed grower myself, I often think about my role as a seed keeper, as a cultural memory keeper for my community. For many of us engaged in seed keeping and seed rematriation, we're also engaged in the revitalization of food traditions, knowledge, skills. What other aspects of Meskwaki culture or foodways are you picking back up or carrying as a part of your seed work?
1: Going back to that you know, the language barrier and you know how seed rematriation has changed me is that now I am in adult muskwaki learners' class, and I had tried to attend the classes, and it was it was just hard for me to do so on so many different levels. But now I like I said the the thing about you know the barriers becoming less and less significant every year that I am reconnected to my ancestral foods and that relationship and the strength and the learning that I get from the seeds has given me more confidence to stick with the language classes. So that's one of the ways. And then of course, once I get a firm grasp on the language that's going to be taught to my children. And of course, I'm not pressuring my boys to have any kids, but to future generations through me as much as I possibly can. I think uh, the foods is another aspect. So I'm always pushing for just in my own diet. And this is going back to the healing. I experienced a health crisis back in 2014, where I developed a hyperthyroidism the uh, endocrinologist wanted to do a thyroid ablation. And I was like, hang on a second. like I think I need that. Let me look into some other stuff. So I found a functional medicine practitioner who tested me for a gut disorder, which I tested positive for. And so I followed her course of treatment, which was antibiotics as well as a specific diet. So my chronic condition went into full remission and the endocrinologists said that they had never seen anything like that before. Soon after, I found myself back at home working with local foods and Meskwaki foods in the Food Sovereignty Program, and I brought that experience into that. And so that's something that it's like, first, you have to practice it, which is tough. We have really busy days where, you know, getting some, some more convenience foods in our belly is just sometimes... When we don't have anybody home to cook for us, it's sometimes the only way to get nutrition because we're stretched so thin and we're so busy and we're all working so hard. At the same time, that's one of the reasons that I needed to reset my life and my priorities because it's like food comes first, man. And I can be talking about my ancestral foods and about seeds and cooking and this whole, all these life ways, our cultural ways, but am I living it? There's a big difference there. Are you living it? It has to start at home, it has to start with yourself and to do that work of healing, of reprioritizing your life. And we're even looking at how we live. So we live these very independent lives off in our own little islands. And how are we going to rebuild our kinship family systems? Because our families always had somebody cooking. Always, and that was valued. It was of huge value. Foods were central to everything. And we didn't take the seeds, the earth, all of the growing things and and all of the the things that run around and everything and, and each other. We took none of that for granted. And so, yes, I promote these food ways. It all comes back to me and reinforcing the practice of living it.
0: What other aspects of Meskwaki culture or foodways are you picking back up or carrying as part of your seed work? It's just really incredible how
1: connected everything is. And like I was talking about, you know, once you find that path, like you, you hang on to it. And it's amazing because it's like, once I found the path, I have, I have had so many challenges, so many challenges. In a way, you know, think about it like somebody trying to kick you off that path, right? Trying to distract you. And because of their energy or their agenda, a higher way of describing it is, you know, things that you need to learn. But the thing about the foods and growing the foods and cooking the foods and all of their learning around it, it's connected to everything else. Just everything. Reconnecting to my language in a real intentional and brave way. You know, there's other ways, but I want to focus on that because of this, because I grew up in a community when I was a kid. So Meskwaki was the predominant language on the settlement. I went to town school because there really wasn't hardly any housing out here. And the housing that was out here when I was a kid, it was limited. A lot of the structures were really, really old. And, you know, it was um, actually my aunt that, you know, back in the 70s when we built a tribal center out here and really started getting our own tribal programs going, that she came into the housing department. She might've been one of the first to head that department. And she really aggressively started addressing that. But that lack of housing meant that my parents rented houses in the area. So a lot of times we rented old farmhouses on farmsteads. And especially after the farm crisis, of course, we're still in the farm crisis, by the way, that never stopped, that never ended. But a lot of these smaller farmsteads were swallowed up by larger farms, right? And so there's a lot of empty farmhouses out there. And so we rented, but that meant going to public school. And so I didn't start out at settlement school. Settlement school used to be the kind of the elementary grades. It wasn't big enough to provide for middle school or high school. But what they did provide is they did have language education as a part of it. And even though it wasn't language immersion, it was something. And for the kids that went to town school, like we didn't have any of that. Our language immersion was immersion in English language, English language only. And then when you don't have it spoken at home, but in your community, like you hear it, you know it, but you're also estranged from it. So it's a really weird, weird, weird place to be. It's a kind of identity crisis that I I grew up experiencing because I knew darn well I was Meskwaki. But yet I wasn't, you know, because I didn't speak Meskwaki. And up until, I'd say, pretty recently, the way that a lot of community members dealt with that was by shaming. So, you know, kind of like, you should know this. You should know that already. You should, you should fill in the blank. As if we weren't ashamed already of not just coming out of our mothers with our our culture and our language and everything fully intact. no. That's what your community is there for. But because of, you know, cultural genocide, you know, that was uh, taken away from so many of us. So overcoming that shame has been a lifelong struggle because that you should know this. How many times you've heard that? How many times that you've internalized that? It's just punctuated into your heart. You know, it's such a terrible heart wounding and without the strength and the healing that I found through my seeds and my foods, my Meskwaki seeds, my Meskwaki foods from my grandmother's going back 140 generations, you know, that's powerful. Like this is the fourth time that I've been in language class for adult beginners, but this time it's sticking because nobody is going to keep me away from it. So it's like um, I'm regaining my language, my birthright. And I've been trying to do this for a long time and really haven't been able to get over that shame until experiencing that healing from those seeds. and all of our ceremonies, everything, you know, we need our language for
0: that. I can really relate to a lot of what you shared, Shelly, in my own life. And I'm so honored to be in this work and on this path with people like you. Thank you for for sharing this gift with us today.
1: Yeah, and same here, Shiloh.
0: So looking ahead now, where do you see your seed work going from here? Or where would you like it to be going?
1: Well, my seed work has actually, so I left my position in February of this year. I was burned out, I mentioned that earlier. And I found working in tribal ops to be not the right environment for me. You know, and often those hard things are, you know, a part of your growth. It's like, I'm not going to grow here, so I need to go someplace where I can keep growing. And as a transitional job, I went to Seed Savers Exchange, which is in northeastern Iowa. And I worked there for the growing season on the field crew to, number one, expand my seed knowledge. So we grew out, I think, over 270 varieties this past summer, my seed stewardship knowledge. So it's like that, just all of that uh, growing out so many different kinds of plants and, you know, all the different ways that we try to keep them from crossing. Although sometimes I have trouble with that. Some of it we need to let cross, right? The other part of going to Seed Savers was to experience, you know, a different organizational paradigm, because I know Seed Savers has been going through a lot of work on itself as an organization. From there, I also have started my own consultancy, not on purpose, just kind of like it developed that way because I was asked to contribute to food sovereignty efforts in other communities, And so the consultancy is like, you know, because I want to stay here at Meskwaki. Right now, I'm not prepared to relocate anywhere, although at the time I would have liked to. But I have a freshman in high school, so I'm at least here for the next four years. But that doesn't mean I'm going to take off in four years either. I'm pretty connected to living on my tribal lands. And I just recently became an AmeriCorps VISTA (laughs) which I didn't plan on doing either. (laughs) It was kind of, I am already placed with the name of the organization is SILT. So it's Sustainable Iowa Land Trust. So it's an organization that helps protect land to keep it growing food and with covenants to make sure that it's not developed, not only for residential, but like corporate, as well as, you know, industrial farming, basically. And my role in SILT is going to be to basically work on land access for BIPOC folks. And that's something that I'm really passionate about. Going back to even when I started gardening on my own and wanting to grow out my own tame of Flint corn, it was a challenge trying to find a little, a little plot to do that with. And I'm an enrolled tribal member. And so if it's a challenge for me... What about all of our Meskwakis who are descendants? And we're not even going to get into blood quantum and enrollment because that's like, wow, that's a whole other conversation. But it does play into this because that's another form of genocide and removal, right? Which each generation, you know, we're kind of breeding ourselves out. And we now have Meskwakis who are second class citizens and they don't have access to land at all, let alone, you know, a garden space. And then looking historically about land loss and then, of course, access to land for marginalized folks, it's a real problem. And so for any type of land trust organization, I really feel like land access for marginalized people needs to be at the forefront.
0: Well, I really look forward to hearing uh, where your journey takes you. I just want to say again, Chimi Gwech, Thank you so much for generously sharing your journey and your experiences with us, Shelley. As I said, it's a real honor and inspiration to work alongside you and and others who are doing this important work. Thank you for having me be a part of this. Like I'm really honored. Thank you. Take care. Thank you for listening to Reconnecting with Our Foods and Seeds, Episode 3 of Spirit Plate. We hope you enjoyed it. A big thank you to Shelly Buffalo, Meskwaki Seed Keeper. You can learn more about the seed saving and rematuration work happening across Turtle Island by checking out the Indigenous Seed Keepers Network, a program of the Native American Food Sovereignty Alliance. You can learn more about their network at nativefoodalliance.org. That is N-A-T-I-V-E-F-O-O-D-A-L-L-I-A-N-C-E dot O-R-G. The Spirit Plate Podcast is an honoring of all the indigenous communities across Turtle Island who are working to preserve and revitalize their ancestral foodways. More specifically, throughout Season 1, we'll discuss some of the social, political, and historical reasons why the Indigenous food sovereignty movement is necessary. Critical understanding of the journey that led us here needs to become a more common understanding before American society can give life to a new, more equitable food system. And a more equitable food system requires narrative equity. Indigenous people must get to define their own relationship to land and food, and tell the story of their work themselves. Through interviews with seed keepers, chefs, farmers, and community members, this podcast will share what food justice and sovereignty looks like for Indigenous peoples across Turtle Island. As your host, I'm inviting you to the table and into a deeper conversation. I hope that you'll be inspired to think about your own connection to place and how this has influenced your relationship to food. I also hope you'll feel moved to build genuine relationships with original caretakers of the place you reside and consider how you can stand in solidarity with their communities. If you would like to learn which Indigenous communities' homeland you reside upon, visit native-land.ca. That is e-l a n dot You can subscribe to Spirit Plate anywhere you get your podcasts, and we'll be back next week with Becky Webster, Oneida seed keeper, farmer, and attorney to talk about the Oneida people's relocation experience. Now, she's helping to revitalize her community's ancestral foods. Spirit Plate is part of the Whetstone Radio Collective. Thank you to the Spirit Plate team, producer and music composer Kat Yang, audio editors Kat Salinas and Bethany Sands, researcher Giselle Kennedy Lord, and intern Indigo Clarkson. I'd also like to thank Whetstone founder Stephen Satterfield, Whetstone Radio Collective executive producer Celine Glacier, sound engineer and music designer Max Kudlchuk, associate producer Quentin LeBeau, production assistant Amalisa Utenko, and sound intern Simon Lavender. You can learn more about this podcast at whetstoneradio.com, at Instagram and Twitter at Whetstone Radio, and subscribe to our YouTube channel, Whetstone Radio Collective, for more podcast video content. You can learn more about all things happening at Whetstone at whetstonemedia.com. Until next time, that might be...